You are listening to the DIY Recording Guys podcast, your one-stop information source for DIY music production, with your hosts, Fadim Karaz and Benjamin Hall. All right, welcome to the DIY Recording Guys podcast. We're going to be doing an episode on drum production, all about drums. I'm your host, Vadim, from Calm Frog Recording. And I'm Benjamin Hall from Dreamloud Studio. Uh, excited to be doing another episode with you, Vadim. It's always, always a pleasure. This is a special episode today. A very special episode. We have our first ever guest. So one of, the, one of the biggest challenges, I think, in a DIY recording situation is working with multi-microphone sources. And like the bear of all examples there is drums, right? Mm -hmm. Drums is like, it's a large instrument, it's a dynamic source, it covers the entire frequency spectrum, it relies heavily on room sound, and we have to deal with things like microphone phase and bleed between mics. So our special guest today is Eddie Vesey of Drum Audio Editing and the Entrepreneur Drummer. And... Well, we say Eddie is somebody who deals with the fallout of recorded drums, right? So as somebody who does a lot of drum editing, um, he sees probably things that are done well and things that are not done so well. So um, we're very excited. Eddie, welcome to the DIY Recording Guys podcast. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for having me. It's um, great that I'm the first guest anyway. I didn't expect that. <laughs> I've, um, I've actually been listening for the past few weeks and... Yeah, I really like the approach to DIY recording that you cover. So, yeah, it's good to be here. Thank you. Well, thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining us for sure. So we're going to dive into a lot of stuff on drums. But before we do that, Eddie, maybe you can give us and our listeners an introduction on kind of where your musical journey started and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, so I think my journey started similar to how a lot of people's do in the fact that I was just a bedroom musician. Um trying to write music in a band you know how it is um you join a band you learn how to play an instrument and you think you know i'm gonna try and record this myself um you get any kind of gear you can mm -hmm. any kind of crappy mics you can and you just you know start going from there really and uh yeah that was about seven or eight years ago i bought my first interface uh bought mics and um yeah just started hitting record and just learning how the process works from there really what what's your instrument, by the way? It's um I started off playing guitar uh, since I've okay. got more into bass and drums as well, but predominantly I'm a guitarist by trade. Cool. But uh, yeah, so from there I s sort of started to enjoy the recording side more to the guitaring. And at this point, <laughs> to be quite honest, I haven't picked up a guitar in about a year and a half, two years. Um, it's been a while, so I'm probably pretty rusty. Um. But yeah, from there, I got into sort of recording local bands. Uh, from there, I got into more of the mixing side as well. And then literally just a couple of years ago, I decided to take a niche into just working with drums and drum editing. Very cool. Yeah, it's amazing how, how similar people's stories are in this sphere. We, I think, Ben, you and I were talking about it on the first episode we ever did. Yeah. How we all do start out kind of as, as musicians. And then, that, you know, your story is like word for word my story where I just found like I enjoyed recording and, and mixing and producing even more than playing. And I'm also ashamed to say Ben doesn't have this problem, but I am also ashamed to say I haven't touched the guitar in a little while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, my only saving grace is that I do so much 
uh, producing as well. So I wind up having to pick up, like I'm forced to pick up the guitar to play if like somebody can't get a part or we don't have time. So that keeps me right on. from being too rusty. Well, personally, I think uh, to start off as a musician, it really helps you actually appreciate the recording process because you understand how difficult it is sort of recording to a click and then hearing yourself back and you th- realize that the take that you did is actually a pile of crap and you need to do it again and it sort of makes you appreciate the whole recording process and what it takes to be just a musician in a studio and to be honest as well just learning the recording process i think i think just makes you a better musician what what were some of your strategies in those early days on you know, how, where did you get information how did you go about learning or was it just purely like trial and error plug stuff in set the mic up and see what you get <laughs> yeah, it was very much that, to be honest. Um, I think if I had some of the resources out there, um, sorry, resources then that are out there today, uh, it would have been a lot easier. But I would say most of it was just reading on blogs, uh, watching YouTube videos, just whatever came up on Google, really. Um, mm. But I think the main thing, like you say, is kind of trial and error. You've got to try things. Um, you don't learn without trying it and maybe failing a few times and figuring things out, really. You know, one thing I think I found, I'd love to hear your perspective on this, Eddie, but one thing I found once I started getting into recording my my own music and stuff like that was that uh, I got this impression from reading on the internet that you have to have this specific type of gear or this certain setup or you can't record drums unless you have like a perfectly treated room, like just all things like this. And I'm so glad that I decided to just play around with what I had because I found that, okay, maybe this doesn't sound as good as recording in a commercial space, but I really am liking the vibes of stuff that I was getting. And so it kind of taught me to trust my ears or to like hone my ears into figuring out what a good tone was or how to, uh, how to translate what I wanted to hear in my head as far as what the final song needs to sound like and figuring out what I needed to do with even the microphones or the space that I have, how I needed to arrange that or set that up to kind of capture those things. Yeah, um, I couldn't agree more, really. Um, I think that before you go into all the expensive stuff that everyone on internet forums kind of preaches (laughs) that you need, um, I think before you do that, like you say, just going down to the basics and how to get good tones and how to get the best out of your room and things like that you need to learn before you invest in all that equipment because if you don't get those basic first things right, like you've mentioned, um, I think it's gonna you won't get the best out of that equipment. Hmm. And I'm also a believer that uh, when you get to the really high-end stuff, as cool as it is, uh, it gets to the point where it is kind of like you're paying for a brand and you could get just as good a sound on cheaper gear. Yeah, I, and we talk about this a lot as well, and I think this goes exactly hand-in-hand hand with what you're saying, is that you have to know the limits of the gear you have. Yeah. I think that's an important part of, you know, considering upgrades is have you reached, have you squeezed out the maximum out of the gear you already own? Uh, if you haven't, then maybe there's something you can make up some gaps with education rather than uh, spending money. Yeah, definitely. And I think once you do get to that point, then when you do upgrade your gear, you're going to be able to get a really good sound out of that. If you can't get a good sound out of crappy gear, then you won't be able to get a good sound out of better gear. Right. I'm interested to know where your guys first ever interface and set up. 
Yeah, I'll let you I'll let you in on that. So the my first setup ever was an audio box USB. I just bought the most affordable, most convenient thing that I could get my hands on. Uh, and the reason was is I was playing in a band at the time. We were kind of going through our songwriting process, and we did a lot of jamming together in the room whenever we wrote songs. And so I would bring riff ideas, and I kept getting frustrated with, uh, you know, bringing a riff. And it wasn't just the riff, but I had like a full song idea that I wanted to go around it and. Because I'm a drummer also, uh, I had an idea of like what I wanted the rhythms and the grooves to be. And I kept getting frustrated with bringing these riff ideas that I came up with. And then the drummer would play something so off the wall to like what I wanted that it would get kind of frustrating. And, you know, by the time we were done jamming for 10 minutes, I didn't even want to play the song anymore because <laughs> it had turned into something that I didn't, that I didn't like anymore. So uh, that's what kind of gave me the... Uh, gave me the original passion to like start investigating recording because I was like, well, if I can capture all of my ideas in a more finished state, whenever I bring them to the band, then they can't, you know, screw them up so much. <laughs> if this turns into, if this turns into a session on us, the three of us just bashing drummers, then <laughs> that's going to be bad. Yeah. So, so Ben, you, so you got into recording because your drummer wasn't, uh, wasn't playing what you wanted him to play basically. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Eddie? It's uh, I was actually I was going to ask you the same question. So, go ahead. What was your first interface? Well, it's funny you mentioned earlier about how you sort of how I researched stuff and uh, how I learned things. Well, obviously, I didn't learn how to shop for interfaces properly because my first interface was actually a Behringer mixer, uh, which I used as an interface. It was like a USB one, but it had four inputs, four mic inputs, but it didn't let you record them independently of each other. It was just all in, um, you know, everything was went in one input. So um, it was kind of like... What do you like, mean, like, like it would record on like a single track? Yeah, yeah. So you couldn't oh, actually okay. record it on separate tracks. So um, I spent like all my money at the time. I was only a kid, saved up for ages for this. And <laughs> yeah, it turned out not what I wanted. But yeah, it was just Behringer Mixer and... It enabled me to just record guitars and a bit of percussion and vocals and stuff like that. Um, it did the job at the time, you know. Uh, I had a crappy little Behringer condenser mic as well, which, yeah, again, it did the job. It was all right. Um, allowed me to sort of actually get into recording, get into sort of messing around with mic placements and especially like mixing as well, how to get the best out of a perhaps not so good mic when you actually come down yeah. to mixing. That's really interesting because there's something to be said for that, I think, as a, as a learning tool, because the, the fact that you were forced to record everything onto kind of a single, was it a single stereo track? Yes, it was. Yeah. Yeah. So that kind of forced you to almost get the mix, quote unquote, right before hitting record because you knew you, were gonna, you weren't going to be able to adjust like individual levels and stuff, right? Yeah, exactly. And I know sort of people with a less mic inputs in their interfaces perhaps the cat afford you know like a four channel or an eight channel interface you do have to sort of um overcome and adapt that sort of issue um especially if you're a drummer yeah 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 absolutely i think yeah we'll definitely get into that on how to record with fewer inputs um yeah my um i i had like a, a blue like the blue tascam 
Uh, it was like it recorded four independent tracks onto like a standard cassette. And that was my first experience. Um, I just like for some reason that thing. I just loved it. I just loved that idea of being able to like put in a cassette and record four independent tracks. But then when I got into digital recording, I was plugging everything into just my line in on my computer, on my big desktop computer. And I finally got like an SM58 microphone, which I just I couldn't plug in directly into the line in. So then I had to like buy an interface. So I got the little um, like the little Scarlet 2i2 two channel interface. And then uh, that's kind of when I started researching more about what an interface does and trying to actually <laughs> learn about what I needed. Uh, real quick, did you record any drums with your four channel mixer, Eddie? I actually didn't with my mixer. I used to okay. actually record drums at college uh, and then I'd bring that home import that into my DAW and then I'd sort of record the guitars and bass and everything else on top of it like that okay cool alright well we'll definitely get into editing but I think maybe a good way to go about this is just kind of starting from the beginning so let's start with preparing for a drum recording session uh, what are you guys doing before the session even starts so I think the main thing is I think you guys would agree is to get things sounding as good as possible from the source. So in terms of drums, making sure that all your heads are nicely tuned. Uh, if you want to really get into it, then make sure they're sort of tuned to the key of the song if you go that much in depth. But as long as your heads are in tune, you've got fresh heads that sound good. Um, obviously, no cracks on your cymbals, just making sure that your kit's in the best um you know, condition possible for recording, really. Just the same as if, you know, you was a guitarist and you had to change your strings. Yeah, and Eddie, I, I know, I think in your, um, I've been checking out some of your, your YouTube channel videos, and uh, I think the intro little clip you have is actually of you tuning drums, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, yeah. So I do want to, like, this is, for me, having never never played drums, drum tuning is still a bit mysterious. I always, like, rely on the drummers. So maybe say a couple things about that. What are what are some strategies you use? <laughs> Sounds bad this, but I don't have a particular strategy really. Um, I work closely with one of my good friends who's a drummer for a band called Scarlet Riot. And uh, we tend to have quite a lot of drum recording sessions together. Um, he's a drummer. Uh, so we'll sort of get in a room. We'll come up with these ideas. We'll hit record. And uh, basically, he shot he sort of just showed me um, a few bits on tuning drums as well, how to do it by ear, really. And basically, we just sort of like a hit and miss sort of process where we'll just keep recording, uh, seeing whereabouts the toms and snares sound good. And then when we're at the right sort of area, then we'll go and fine tune that, um, going around all the pegs and making sure that it's nicely tuned to wherever yeah. we want it, really. It all just depends on the song. Uh, I think... In other people's case, it depends on the genre as well, whether if you want that really high snappy snare or if you want that low hit, um, if you're sort of into metal music. A lot of time goes into, well, the snare is such an iconic sound like that. I feel like you need to spend some extra time, like fine tuning, like where you want that, that snare to sit. Like, even if you think about some famous bands, like you were talking about the, the heavier stuff where the snares tuned down really low. So it, it, that's mostly more of a feel thing than it is a sound thing because when the th head's that loose, like there's a lot of uh, punch and slap to it. Uh, yeah. 
And then you have the opposite of a band like 311 where they have a Teflon snare head on it and they crank the heck out of it to, you know, to the point yeah. where it's like bouncing back and like you have, and you have both extremes where you have some uh, heavier bands that play with really high tuned snares. So I guess it's like whatever, whatever you have in your head or whatever you're trying to emulate. Um, but I do agree a lot with Eddie as far as when it comes to toms in particular, but even like the kick drum, there's a lot of trial and error there. I noticed that like the the newer a head is that you put on a drum, the easier it is to tune, especially with toms. Mm. And then after like a day of like hard playing in the studio, like those once those heads are shot, like I notice it's way harder to actually get them into tune. It's like they don't want to uh, each, uh, I guess part of the head around each lug nut it doesn't want to stay in tune with the other ones anymore so that's normally a mm. that's normally a red flag to me as far as when to know when to change a head is whenever it seems like okay this is getting nearly impossible to get this in tune anymore mm. what about like i know this we, we talk about this with with guitars as well like tuning in between songs or something like that um do it don't do it I mean, I know engineers actually, say every few takes, literally, they say that they keep checking to make sure everything's perfect. Uh, my personal opinion would be that that's a bit overboard. Um, it's not entirely necessary, in my opinion. I'd, I'd just say once you've got a sound that you're happy with, and like Ben said, if your head's in good condition, then they will maintain that tuning for a mm. day of drum recording. Uh, so profound you've got new heads and you tune it to your liking i'd say just stick to recording as good good it takes as possible rather than you know going back and retuning every few takes because that's gonna if anything interrupt the creative process and uh, there's no point you know risking that for the sake of having absolutely perfectly tuned drum gotcha yeah and i i would say the same kind of thing it's really similar to guitar actually where so let's imagine you're recording a song and you notice by the end of it, uh-oh, my that that power chord doesn't sound like it's in tune anymore. Maybe we should do that take again and and retune everything. It's very similar with drums. Like maybe uh maybe the drummer's hitting really really hard and so he's physically making the drums go out of tune more quickly. Yeah. And so you'll hear like a tom by the end of the song, it sounds like it's at a lower pitch than at the beginning of the song, so Yeah, yeah. What about setting up the room um i know i'm actually surprised that more studios don't have like a permanently fixed drum mic setup like i I feel like a lot of times it seems like drum you know drum mics are being set up from scratch what do you guys think about that is it worth kind of going through do you have anything that you i guess keep fixed from session to session well uh personally i don't have a fixed location for recording drums at the minute but if I did, I'd 100% keep a you know dedicated kit set up with your mics all in place. Not only is it a great time saver, but once you've got that great sort of, um, you know, you've worked out your mic placements, you know what sounds good. It just makes sense to keep it there ready for, you know, just recording. So you can literally get the kit, hit record, and everything's ready to go. So, uh, yeah, if you have the facility to do so, I'd definitely do that. Yeah, and I guess if you have enough microphones and stuff like that, I could see wanting to use certain mics and you know on other sources and so on. What about you, Ben? Yeah, I agree with I agree with everything Eddie said. My my situation is that I only have uh 
I only have just enough microphones to only record a drum set. So as soon as we're done with drums, I tear them all down to record the other instruments, essentially. So I can't keep them up permanently, but... At the si- at the same time though, like because I've recorded so much, I know where I want to go in my room every time I record drums. Um, I don't want to do too much on on room acoustics, but let's just pretend you're in a room or you're in a rehearsal space. Um, maybe isn't ideal. What are some of the kind of the minimal things you would do to control the room acoustics? Kind of what's what's more important? What can you get away with? Well. <laughs> Obviously, there's certain things you can't control, like the actual room you're in. Not always, anyway. Um, but something that I've actually found that helped a lot for me back in the day when I was doing it, I was traveling and just doing uh, recordings at people's practice areas, if you like. Um, I actually had a big like frame, and I took a load of curtains with me, old curtains, and I'd like surround the kit with that. And I know it's not perfect. It's not ideal. It's not like a commercial facility, but I actually found that that worked really well. Uh, dampened everything down and, you know, it sounded really good. A lot of people listening are probably DIY and they want cheaper or more or easier alternatives of controlling acoustics. So I've personally found that work really well for me anyway. So if, if you do have something along them lines, um, I think it could work. Yeah, I agree with Eddie. And in particular, if you're in a small space that doesn't have like anything on the wall, so it's really echoey, that could be a really great idea. Uh, you're keeping that slapback echo from bouncing directly off the wall and getting back into your your direct mics. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I, I was recording in a studio a couple of weeks ago, and they had they were using a very similar concept where they had these kind of high density moving blankets. They're pretty heavy blankets, and they actually had one like on the ceiling as like um, almost like um, a U-shape hanging over the kit, which helped minimize the reflections off of the ceiling. And then very commonly you'll see a rug underneath the kit itself to minimize some of those floor reflections. And I think of just stuff moving around as well. Um, and I've also seen, we'll get into the maybe uh, like room mics are such a huge part of a lot of drum sounds. I've also seen like people put diffusers behind room mics to kind of, uh, well, I, mean, I don't know, maybe you guys have any experience with that? Do you use any diffusers in your in your spaces or any experience with them? I've never actually used one personally. Uh, when I, I went through a bit of a stage of being obsessed with acoustics and trying to treat my room mm. as good as possible, and I saw these weird-looking diffusers, and <laughs> they look quite complex, actually, but they're actually quite expensive, so I've heard. Yeah, diffusers can get really pricey. Yeah, they... Um, I guess the, the, the some of the theory behind a diffuser is as opposed to like um, acoustically insulating materials, which tend to, we can call them absorbers, where they absorb acoustic energy. A diffuser is kind of a, an odd looking geometry. It almost seems random, but there is some mathematical principles behind it. And they kind of scatter um, the sound wave around the room. And one thing, one situation you hear that they're useful in is if you actually have a small room, having some diffusers in that room can can make the space seem a little bit bigger. So I think recording drums in a small space, which I, I currently don't record drums out of my studio, but my space is on the smaller side. I think if I I would look at some, there's actually some, some d- nice DIY options too, where you could buy like um, 
you know, like just some go to Home Depot, buy some lumber or something, and then you can chop it up into different length pieces and like glue it to a board. I've seen some some pretty uh, <laughs> everything from like really rough looking DIY diffusers to some nicer stuff. But um, there's some options up out there if you have a small space and you're interested in that. I want to dive into some. So with my answer, I want to dive into some like room mic stuff because I th- I think it's such an interesting topic because uh, I self-taught my, myself all this recording stuff, kind of like Eddie. And so a lot of my stuff is trial and error. And I didn't even understand when I first started recording drums, like why are people making such a big deal about room mics? I thought I could just add reverb. Like what's the difference <laughs> between, what's the difference between reverb and room mics? I thought that's the whole point of what a room mic was is to to grab the reverb naturally. And that's kind of true, but it's also a little bit different. Um, but I also think too, when it comes, when we talk about room size, like if you have a room that's so small that you can't get room mics on, like to record a drum set at least 10 feet away from your drum kit, then it might not even be worth setting up room mics at all. Because I think you need a minimum distance away for that sound to uh, travel through the room to be able to hear the depth of the kit. And even through my own experimentation, I've found that I think this latest project that I recorded, I love the, I love the room sound that I got, but I think I might've placed my room mics maybe a little bit too far away because the, the sound of the kick drum, uh, as it kind of decays over time, it kind of felt to me like that decay time is maybe a little bit, it's too long for the speed of the song as far as the BPMs go. Uh, and so it's more than just finding this, the place in your room where the mics sound the best. It's also keeping all these other little things in mind, <laughs> uh, like distance away. Like, what do, what do you think about that, Eddie? Like, what, have you found an optimal distance or do you play with that distance? Usually I found um, about six feet away from the kit works well for me. Hmm. It's just got that right balance of, like you say, the sound of the room. And you've also got a bit of the overheads, uh, sorry, a bit of the cymbals, a bit of the snare and kick to add to the actual individual close mic sounds as well. Uh, so I found that about six feet away is sort of a right distance for me. But I suppose, mm. like you say, it depends on the song itself and what you're working with. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I've, I've heard people mention you have this concept of like um, pre-delay almost on a reverb, right? Where it's... Yeah how much time elapses be- before that source sound starts to reverberate. And like, that's kind of what you're sort of, one of the things you're playing with when you're when you're adjusting that room mic distance, right? The farther away they are, the more of a pre-delay you'll have because the sound will hit the close mic first and then it takes a little bit, of, you know, a couple of milliseconds for it to reach the room mic. So um, I am actually interested in that. Um, Maybe let's let's stick with room mics for a bit then. Um, what do you guys do in, in terms of like polar patterns, where you put the mics? We kind of talked about a little bit about distance, but as far as where the mics are facing, are they facing towards the kit? Are they looking away from the kit? What are some things you've done? And does it vary by situation? Does definitely vary by situation. The way I typically like to send them up, set them up is uh, I will always face them towards the kit but I could mm. think of situations where I wouldn't do that. Um, I like to have, I have a stereo pair of ribbon mics and I like to set them up about, if I'm standing there, I'll hold my arms out. So I guess that's six feet and I'll, I'll put each microphone at the end of my, my hands. Mm. 
we'll call out the rule of rule of arms instead of rule of thumb. <laughs> yeah, the rule of arms. Yes, and I love I love that ribbon or using ribbon mics in that context because they naturally roll off the high end, so the symbols are way uh, less yeah. bright than they would be otherwise. But um, I also set up a mono room mic a little bit farther away from the kit, and I angle that towards the ground. And my idea behind that is trying because the low frequencies are going to travel along the ground farther, and maybe. Also, just kind of shielding away from the high end that's going to, you know, be more sensitive to the direction you're angling your microphone. That's at least my idea behind all of that. Uh, what about you? Yeah, just to plant a flag there. So when we say, uh, just to clarify, when we point, when we say microphone is pointing somewhere, we're kind of referencing polar patterns there, right? So a microphone will have a certain polar pattern, which is kind of the area that's sensitive around the mic. So if you think about like the example I like to use is a flashlight. A flashlight, if you shine it in the dark, it illuminates kind of a, you know, some space on the wall. The back of the flashlight doesn't really illuminate anything. That's kind of like a cardioid or a directional polar pattern. So that's when we talk about when we're saying whether a microphone faces towards something or away from something. And Ben, just just to um, clarify a thing there. So those ribbon mics you're using are, what are they, a figure eight polar pattern? Yeah, they're a figure eight polar pattern. And I have the figure eight angled parallel to the kit essentially parallel to the kit so so that means the mic is sensitive to sounds directly in front of it and directly in back of it and you're you're kind of facing one of those sensitive areas um on each mic towards the kit yep okay all right how about you eddie so i really like ben's concept uh using uh stereo room mics and then having a mono as well personally i just use a mono uh I tend mm. to like using the Rode NT1A because it just tends to pick up a bit of everything. It gets good low end from the kick and also it picks up the nice out of the room and all the high end as well. Mm. But um, I'd be interested to know if it's difficult for you to actually deal with the reflections off the back of the wall. Say you're using your figure of eight. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Do you find that tough to deal with or do you find that usually that comes out? The interesting thing about, and I was just telling Vadim about this before we started the podcast, but I'm using these. Uh, CAD Tryon 3000, I think is what they are. I bought them used at a guitar shop. And I noticed about them, the figure eight that isn't equal on both sides. There's one side of the microphone that's way louder than the other. So I'm kind of pointing the more sensitive side towards the kit. And also my my basement is so big that really I have my my microphones are almost in the middle of the room because I'll put the drum kit more to one edge of of my room. Yeah. So instead of having the drums in the middle and my microphones towards the edge, I kind of put the drummer in the edge of the room and have him play out so that I I guess it's because I want the microphones to be in a more ideal location in the room. Let's stick with with the room mics for a second. Eddie, when you when you say so you you like to use a mono kind of a mono mic, just a single mic. Uh, as your room mic, um, what are, and you mentioned it picks up, um, you like that large diaphragm condenser NT1A uh, because it picks up some of the kick drum sound. What do, where do you put it height-wise? It depends really um, on the actual song or project. Uh, sometimes I'll have it about the drummer's height when it's sat down and have it angled down towards the actual kick drum. Mm. But say if I wanted to pick up more of the overheads, more of the cymbals, then I'd place it about head height of me. I'd like to say six foot, but I'm not quite there. 
Um, but yeah, <laughs> You're closer about, than I am probably. <laughs> about six foot in the air, and I usually angle that slightly down towards the drummer as well. Okay. So it all depends really on how much of the kit and what part of the kit I really want to actually capture in the room, Mike. Gotcha. And you're doing the same thing where you're you're facing. Um, I think I don't think that mic has an adjustable polar pattern, does it? No, it doesn't. It's just cardioid. Cardioid. So you're you're pointing the sensitive side of the mic towards the kit. Yeah, yeah. To be honest, I actually haven't messed around with the placements too much in terms of actually. Uh, rotating it around the room, maybe seeing how it sounds if it's pointed towards the back, away from the kit. Uh, but yeah, that would be something that I'd like to try actually and just see how that actually affects the overall sound. I was just going to say, I think for listeners too, like when you're going about trying to figure out maybe where you want to set up your microphones, like just walk through the room and use your ears. Like that's what I love to do is have the drummer play and maybe put some uh, I have these really cool earplugs that they filter the sound, so they're not like the the foamy kind that cut all the high end. They cut all the frequencies pretty evenly, so that I can stand being the same room as the drummer and not lose my hearing. But <laughs> so I'll put I'll put those in and just walk around the room until like I find a spot that I think it sounds really vibey or really cool, and then I'll be like, okay, let's set up the microphone there and just see see if I still like the sound. That's huge, you know. We don't we don't do enough like public service announcements and I feel like for people people need to definitely think about conserving their hearing and definitely when we yeah. talk about drums it's one of the louder sources we record I think that's huge um you know it's okay to be in the room for a couple of drum hits but in general yeah earplugs are uh definitely recommended where where I've seen I, I like what you said there about you know listening to the space cuz I think a lot of people in DIY situations tend to use things like basements which have a lot of hard surfaces and that could be good or it could be bad um what i've seen done in some commercial spaces with really good sounding live rooms was uh using ribbon mics or figure eight mics and actually pointing the null sides of the microphone so kind of like the you know the center part of the eight towards the kit on both mics and what they're the idea behind it was that you actually want the microphone, the room mics, to reject the direct kit sound and to capture the room reflections. Mm. And because it was a nice sounding room and a large room, um, that that can get a really nice sound as well. So I think, yeah, listening to, to your space while the drummer is playing or even just walking around and clapping is sometimes nice. You can hear those uh, a little bit of what's going on with reflections and play around with it. You know, you could set the mics up and then try to turn them and um see if you get see if you like what what you hear better or worse um ben i wanted to ask you too you said you have so you have a stereo pair looking at the kit and then you have the mono mic um yeah what what are you doing with that mono mic in terms of like in the mix what's it what's its function great question so i i guess it goes back to the kind of sounds i was trying to emulate just with setting up room mics in the first place and so what I do with the stereo pair is more the idea with that is to get an overall general sound of the kit and just to give it some depth, kind of like a reverb plugin would do. You're trying to give those uh, direct and immediate sounds. You have all your spot mics set up on your kit. And uh, if that's all that you have, uh, your drum set can wind up sounding in some ways not as natural as listening to a band play in the room because 
you're you're not getting all of the reverberations that are bouncing around with the direct mics you're only picking up that initial transient hit so you have to add something else to give the drums some sustain and some depth to them uh so that's what i like to do with the stereo pair but my idea with the mono room mic is i think more just to capture the the sustain uh, and the room sound of the snare drum because I like to compress the heck out of that microphone to make it sound more like an explosion. So the idea <laughs> is the idea is is that um, you're grabbing the tone and the initial transient with that direct mic on the snare and then you have that split second in the future, that room mic that's super compressed is coming in and adding all that vibe to the end of the sound. That's how you kind of get that more shotgun hard rock snare sound. I gotcha. Okay, so you're using, yeah, the, so the stereo pair is kind of for the room sound, a little bit of a reverby thing, and then the mono mic is adding some sustain um, to the to the shells. Yeah, and some dirty nastiness, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> gotcha, okay. Um, all right, I think we we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about uh, phase, right? Microphone phase Ooh, considerations. Yes. Um, Good point. So, first, let's explain what phase is. So, anytime you have two microphones looking at a single source, you can picture like each microphone captures, um, a, you know, the, the the sound wave of that source. But if one microphone, let's say, is farther away than the other microphone. You can get this effect where the wave, if you were to record it, you could visually see this in your DAW where the waves would look a little bit offset because the sound from the source is reaching one microphone before it reaches the other microphone. And you could picture this as almost like a noise-canceling headphones effect at its worst where if the, the two waves could be completely out of phase, that means that they basically cancel each other out. So the peaks on one microphone correspond to kind of the troughs on the other microphone and you get mm -hmm. some really weird phasey cancellation stuff. So we have to worry about this anytime we're using a multi-mic setup. So Eddie, we'll start with you. What do you do to fight phase problems? Yeah, so drums is obviously gonna be a big problem for that because you could have eight or even more different sources, um, all those different mics as well picking everything up at slightly different times. So it's kind of inevitable that you are going to get some kind of phase issues, even if you can't hear them that much, there's still going to be a bit there. Um, one thing that I like to just toy around with, really, even if things sound okay to me, um, a good thing to do is to actually um, phase invert the odd track and then just basically um, bypass them turn them back on again and just see what sounds better, really. See if that eliminates some kind of phasiness, some kind of, you know, sometimes you actually have to hear it with that to actually realize that it's there, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So it can be that minimal sometimes that once you do something like that, it actually sounds better once you actually do phase invert certain tracks. So um, say, for example, it wasn't so long ago, I was actually um, on a drum editing session for someone and something didn't sound right. So I actually zoomed in on the tracks and found the actual track that was out of phase with everything else a lot more. So I phase inverted that on and off and sort of just went from there, really. 
Yeah, that's pretty much that's pretty much exactly what I do too. I don't mess around with I've heard of people trying to match up the phase of all the direct mics. I I think I tried doing that once and it sounded so terrible and bad to me that I never tried it again. Have you ever tried that, Eddie? <laughs> yeah, I um I it was one well, actually too long ago. I tried that and I regretted it straight away. I was like, right, I'm just gonna <laughs> I was like, I'm just gonna undo all that and just not bother with that. Um I suppose it's something that you need to really look up sorry really look up on before you actually do it so uh yeah for me that didn't work either (laughs) yeah so i i just haven't messed with it but but i essentially just do the same thing you do too i just flip on a 180 phase invert and just see what sounds better okay yeah there's, there's one thing to um there's a weird thing that can happen with even um like xlr cables where uh, the phase might not be the phase could be flipped on an XLR cable. So sometimes, even if you think you've you've met, even if you've measured your distance and you say, "Oh, my snare drum is exactly the same distance from the one overhead mic as from the other overhead mic," you could have something weird going on with a cable or something like that. So that flipping the phase is always <clears throat> definitely worth checking. Um, and there's kind of two times you know you would do this in the setup phase, and you can also do this in the in the editing phase as well as 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 Eddie uh, mentioned and probably does all the time, um, and that that phase a lot of times in the DAW it looks like a little um, like a little O with a line through it. That's kind of a, the phase invert button. Um, one thing that I like to listen for when I do that phase invert trick is what happens to the low end. I, I feel like the low end is the first thing to kind of disappear when there's a phase problem and a lot of times if you flip the phase and you hear like the low end come back uh that's a good sign that um you had a phase issue i did want to mention a technique i um i read about in general for using multiple microphones that i thought was pretty clever which is that you can set up you can set up two microphones um next to a source looking at a source and then you flip the phase on one of the microphones and you move that microphone basically until you get as much cancellation as possible until almost all the sound is is canceled um when you sum those two mics and then when you flip the phase back you know in theory at least you should have uh microphones that are that are set up in phase i've actually never tried that that's a great trick but reading about that i was like oh that's cool that makes a lot of sense to kind of use that noise canceling uh, noise canceling headphone uh trick to uh to set your phase uh a little bit of maybe, well, it is a related topic, but I did want to mention too, when you're setting up overheads, uh, a nice trick that I found to make sure that you keep your overheads in in phase with each other and with the snare drum uh, is you take a cloth ruler, you can buy them at Walmart or whatever, and then just make, make sure that your distance from each overhead to the snare is the same distance. And that'll solve two problems. It'll keep both your overheads in phase, and it'll also make sure that your snare drum is coming from the center of your stereo image instead of from one side or the other. Yeah, that's huge. Um, I've seen people do that with the snare and also even with the, the kick beater as well um, and trying to get make sure that both of those things are equidistant from the uh, the overhead mics. And that's it's for that re- yeah, for those reasons that you said, for phase... And also to keep them in the in the center of the of the stereo field, which is usually how we mix them. At the minute, the recons that I've dealt with have been pretty good, uh, so I haven't really had to dive in much deeper than that. Uh, 
like I kind of touched on earlier, I have messed about with getting really close up to the waveforms and trying to match things up. Uh, most of the time that hasn't worked for me. Um, but yeah, I, I prefer it when obviously I'm recording a drum kit myself and I can actually make sure that there's minimal phasing recorded. Um, but I suppose I've just been lucky so far that the tracks that I have worked on have had minimal phase problems. Let's hope that luck continues. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, same. <laughs> I've heard some a compelling case made for like you actually don't want all the waveforms to line up perfectly because you're kind of eliminating at that point some of the benefits of having you know these room mics and mics at different distances which are adding reverb and adding some sustain and you actually you want that right that's part of getting a good natural sounding drum kit. Well, I wanted to get into maybe I don't know if this is too soon to get into it, but I wanted to ask Eddie about you know what would you consider a good drum performance as far as getting tracks. Cause I go back and forth about this all the time since I'm doing both recording and editing. And um, I was telling Vadim earlier that kind of my rule of thumb is I want to spend enough time with the drummer that the editing on the other side of things takes that much time or less. <laughs> yeah, well, I agree that I think you need to make sure you get things right at the recording stage as much as you can um, and not just solely rely on editing, mixing. So, yeah, I completely agree there. Uh, and obviously, for my job, it's easier because I don't want to be spending three, four, five hours editing drums. Uh, oh, no way. Th the more edits you're doing, at the end of the day, it's making things less natural. So you do want to mm. sort of have minimal editing, although it is possible to get a really good drum sound from you know, editing a lot. Um, I think that the less editing that's required, the better, really. Yeah, I agree. So what would you consider like a really, let's, let, I guess let's talk in terms of tiers. What would you consider a phenomenal drum recording from the editing perspective? Like, what does that mean for your job? So I have noticed with certain drummers um, do get the kick and hands slightly late which makes things a massive pain in the ass oh like um, flaming yeah it gives a flaming effect and then uh, you have to really cut things up and when you're cutting things up and adding fades in that's where things really do start sounding a bit odd really so um yeah that's um if there's not a lot of that to deal with then i know that they clearly know what they're doing which is nice um another thing that i've noticed is a good drummer actually plays almost perfectly in time for a certain phrase so it's a case of actually nudging the phrase rather than the individual beats so um mm. i tend to do that as well depending on say if certain people want just the feel maintaining and things putting in time then i'll just nudge a phase and not the beats but if the drummer's good then you know a certain phase will be in time to the grid and it's just a case of chopping a certain phrase a certain fill um a couple of uh, beats or bars maybe and then putting that to the grid rather than you know every single beat because when it is every single beat or hit then you know that's where it starts sounding robotic a bit too mechanical i think the more takes you do as well of especially difficult fills the better so you've got more to play with as well when it does come to editing hmm. that's a good point are, are people typically uh, sending you like multiple takes or are you just getting like here's the stems for one take you know, do what you can with it type of thing. Yeah, usually I'll just get a full comp of the song. I won't get multiple takes, but 
this guy that I've been, yeah, unfortunately, I'd like to be able to actually get bits and bobs and mix and match the best things together, if you like. But this guy that I've been working with over the past couple of weeks has actually said um, the songs have actually been similar drum wise, the whole song, apart from the fills, like the beat would be similar, the kick and snare. Um, so we'd sort of just say, look, pick the best fills and then, you know, use them where you like. So um, that's been good in the way that I can get rid of the ones that either don't sound great or require that much editing that they will not sound great um, and actually just keeping the ones that are good. I saw this this really interesting technique, which I only saw it one time, but I feel like I loved it and I think I'm going to to do it, which is... I can't remember only if it was right in the beginning of the session or at the end of the session, but the engineer running the session had the drummer hit each drum with kind of varying velocities. And the point was he was just trying to get those hits almost like samples uh, to use later if he needed to, to fill. All the mics are set up. You're getting the right room sound. And so, you know, you hit the snare maybe with four different velocities and then later, if there's a hit, a bad hit or something that falls flat during a fill, you can kind of copy paste in those quote unquote samples that you've created. You guys uh, played around with that at all? I always do that at the beginning of every session. Always take one shots. Yeah. One shots. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's a really good idea, actually. Um, if I was involved in the recording process a bit more, then I'd definitely just <laughs> recommend that they do that. Um, I don't get sent that across which is a bit harder because that means i'll have to just go through the song and pick a hit mm. that's a good velocity to replace what should have been there you know the bum hit or whatever um but yeah i think that's a great idea another thing you could do is if you're taking your one shot and sampling from the actual kit that's recorded you can do some sample replacement or mix it in uh with the same exact drum and performance that was used you know what I'm saying? To help reinforce your kit. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Define sample replacement. What do we mean when we say sample replacement? Well, sample replacement usually comes in the form of a plugin. So you can effectively, this plugin, this detects a hit, which you can uh, pick up with a threshold um, knob or setting. And then essentially this trigger actually replaces that hit with a given sample that you choose. Right. And yeah, you can you can do this manually. I remember <laughs> I'd never do it again, but one time I did it all manually where I would just go through and, you know, every time there was a kick drum hit, I would put in a MIDI note or whatever, even maybe just an audio sample. Um, so, yeah, we're talking about reinforcing the performance with certain uh, with either a, a pre-recorded sample from like, you know, that you can buy as part of instrument packs or like what Ben was saying with a with a one shot, um, I guess when do you? What's the decision process like on when to use sample replacement, and when you avoid it? So it all depends on the person I'm working with, really, um, and the kind of project as well. I usually find that it's of a big if it's a big production project, big production song, then I'll usually push. Um, that person to actually use sample replacement as well and that's not to actually replace the kit itself but to actually reinforce the actual shells um, because you do find that once you do reinforce like your kick snare and toms uh, it really adds a lot of depth and improves the sound massively in my opinion like nowadays you have this sort of 
you have this technology, you have the capability to do it. So I think not making the most of that is missing out on a good opportunity. I do love um, combining multiple samples, maybe up to, I've done as much as three or four different snares. And the whole point of that is you can take a snare that has a really beautiful top end and then another snare that has like a really deep bottom end and combine those together and get the b best of both worlds. Because if you're just miking, uh, if you just have maybe a top and bottom snare on the actual kit that was performed on, uh, you're limited to the microphone you use and the tuning and where you had it set up as far as what you can capture uh, of the frequency spectrum of that performance. But when you're combining in other samples, and maybe these samples were recorded in a context where they were thinking of, I want to get the deepest, most bottom-heavy snare drum I can get. And another person or another sample is, I want to get the the crackiest, best high-end from a snare. And you can combine all those together to have like a perfect snare sound. I do understand, though, why some engineers or more specifically drummers are against it, though, because drummers are obviously tend to be a bit more protective over their sound they invest a lot of money into the gear um into the drums they put a lot of time into making it sound the way they want it to so for an engineer to turn around and say right sod the sound that you've worked hard on getting we're going to replace that anyway with a sample yeah I can yeah. yeah i can understand both parts really but um i would always go for reinforcing rather than replacing unless if you know the recording's just bad so maybe um, give a little bit, get a little more into uh, drum editing, Eddie. And like, what are what are the benefits? When um, when should you consider drum editing, and how can uh, how can it benefit your tracks? So do you mean after sort of listening to the recording and thinking, does this need editing? Does this need putting in time? Yeah, basically, you you've completed the recording session. You have what you have, and now you have to decide kind of what to do before the next phase which is which is mixing is you know is the drum performance good enough um i guess what do you look what are you looking for and and what are the potential benefits so to be honest i think just listening around a few times uh, with a click on just getting that uh, feel for the track how it's played does it match how you want it to sound uh surprisingly as well i usually find that even if things sound good to your ears even then still a bit of editing does go a long way because you'll be surprised um a few years ago when i sorry a few years ago before i used to start actually um quantizing drums and recordings uh, i thought things sounded good at the time but since i've started quantizing and drum editing on my own songs as well and things that i produced it actually goes such a long way and uh, i find that it glues everything together and makes everything sound so much more whole and professional. So even if you're listening back to a track and think, you know what, that's there or thereabouts in time, even going through it still and picking up on them little bits that are out of time does go a long way. When is the ideal time to edit drums? Is it right after the drums are recorded or is it after the whole recording process is complete? Yeah, so personally, I'd record drums first, um, like, you know, to your guitar, ghost tracks or whatever you have there. And then I'd edit drums before going on to everything else because your drums are the backbone of your song. Uh, you want to get that nailed. You want to get the groove nailed before recording to that because everything you record to the drums then is going to copy 
the groove and the style of how the drums are played, how they sound. So yeah, I'd definitely get into editing drums and making them sound perfect or perfect to you uh, before recording anything else to them. I have um I have made the mistake before of editing drums after everybody's recorded along to the drums and then you have the problem of okay the drums are in time but now nothing else is because they <laughs> recorded to the out of time drums. Yeah. That's a great point. We we talked about that with the, the uh, recording vocals episode as well as you almost want to comp your your main vocal tracks before recording background vocals for that same reason is is you want to be recording you want to have like a yeah, like you said, a backbone, Eddie, right? Or you want to have a reference point that you're you're matching everything to. Yeah, I wanted to pick Eddie's brain about um, uh, how specific do you get um, into editing as far as, like, how precise do you want it to be quantized to the grid? Well, it all depends on who I'm working with and what they sort of want. Uh, I usually give three options. I say, do you want it mechanical, which, like, you know, mechanical sounding really tight to the grid, which I think usually is for either really poppy stuff or really heavy metal. I find find that's like (laughs) the style now to have really mechanical sounded drums, which isn't something that I'm a fan of really, but it's just the way things are sort of become. So, yeah, I'll sometimes if I'm working with a really heavy track and someone will say, look, I want things super tight, then I'll just have to, you know, take that time to actually get things sounding spot on and get the transients lined up with the grid. Um, After that, um, some people choose to go somewhere in between mechanical and loose. So as I touched on earlier, I'd actually cut the drums into phrases or sections and I'd drag that section to sound good. with the click and then do it like that and then um some people who are similar to you in the fact that you know minimal edit and you just want to keep the natural groove then i would just either use my ears or be really um you know i wouldn't <laughs> do a lot of editing i'd be uh i'd be quite lean with it i'd just you know listen and if it really obviously out of time with the click then i'd only edit that then so it all depends okay. on what what everybody individually wants to be honest but I, I find that everyone is different everyone has a different view with this it's kind of one of those subjects isn't it really yeah and i guess maybe to finally finish or to to finish up rounding out the editing uh portion of talking about drums um when would you so let's say you recorded a drum performance or you got tracks when would you determine that, okay, this wasn't a good enough performance to even waste my time editing because it's going to take so much time? <laughs> At, like, when would you give the suggestion? I mean, I'm sure that would be hard to do if you got tracks and you're getting paid to do it, but would you ever suggest, hey, maybe you might want to retract these and then send them to me? I mean, that would be a lot easier to do if you're the engineer in the room recording, but what are you kind of listening for? When do you know that it's so bad I can't do anything with this <laughs> to make it sound good? Well, uh, there's two things, really. The first one is, as I mentioned earlier about the flamming, if there's a lot of flamming, um, and obviously you can't drag a kick, you can't drag a flam in time because then you're putting things out of phase. Um, So if there's a lot of that, then I'll just say, you know, there's nothing I can really do with that. Um, Unless you do sample replacement, then then you can get around it. Um, Another thing that I have found with a, a few projects recently is, 
you have to drag things up far out of time that when you join the audio together and you essentially you've got the same audio overlapping to actually make up that space um you've got it overlapping that far that it's almost hmm. got a delay effect on it so you can hear the snare hitting twice and if you happen <laughs> to yeah and if you happen to drag things that far out of time where they sound like that then obviously it, it there's no editing you can do to make that sound good there's um one guy who hit me up recently is just sort of like i'm not a drummer but i've got this solo project um just bear with the drums but just do what you can with them and uh i literally had to copy and paste four to eight bars of each section because there was all these double hit effects because you have to drag things that far out of time and mm. to be honest if you're doing a diy recording yourself just get the takes down as good as you possibly can don't spend the time uh like you say, don't spend four or five hours editing and just an hour recording. Just put the time into recording the takes as good as you can. And then that's going to save you a lot of headaches in the future. All right. So let's do a couple of, um, I'm going to do some quick fire stuff here. You have only one microphone preamp. You have only one microphone. How do you record your drum kit? Oh, dang, ben, go, one. You go first. One oh, mic. Man. I know, I know this is like this is like your nightmare you're uh you and your 14 <laughs> mic 14 mic setup there yeah uh i guess i would put a i might take um sm7b and put it right behind the kit above the drummer's head mm, interesting that way i get like a mono microphone capturing hopefully everything pretty evenly that's a cool concept i, I would have never thought of that if i'm completely honest that's that's cool I've never tried it, but I've heard of it being done before. And if I was forced to use one mic, I would, I would maybe give it a shot. Yeah, you're kind of capturing the um, the drummer's perspective, then, aren't you? Which is, it depends which way you're doing it from, really. But um, to be honest, when I when I've mixed stuff in the past, I usually do it to the listeners as if you're actually watching the band. So I'd probably do it mm. similar to how I'd use a mono room mic, although I would place it slightly higher um, and point it down towards the um the toms and snare so you're picking up more of that than the actual room itself so mm. I'd, I'd use something like a large diaphragm condenser probably the rode n21a because i just i love that mic <laughs> okay what about uh two mics i would do i would do um sm57 on the snare and then uh beta 52 on the kick just do the direct really you just close mic those two Hey, rapid fire, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no wrong answers. No wrong answers. I'd maybe just do a two overhead mics, actually, and then you getting, you know, you're capturing the cymbals, you're capturing um, the toms and the snare. You're not getting so much of the kick in there, but that way, at least, you can do a stereo image um, with the two overheads. I like Eddie's answer better. I want to change mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think I would. I think I would go with overheads, and then. Um... And then maybe some sample reinforcement for the for the shells. And the reason I said two mics, by the way, was because I think a lot of the entry-level interfaces have two channels, right? So that might be yeah. what people are working with. Um, yeah, my next one was four mics. And this one I did want to um, get into a bit. Um, I actually got this idea from from one of your one of your uh, recent videos, Eddie. So uh, I, I, <laughs> I, gotta, I thought so. Yeah. I got to give credit where credit <laughs> is due there. But yeah, go ahead and uh, do do four mics. You got a, you got four mics and four preamps how do you mic your kit yeah so basically i always learned a one four and eight mic setup depending on what interface you have really um so with four mics i'd do your kick and snare 
because your kick and snare, the driving forces of your kit, you know, it's what determines the feel of the drums. So yeah. I do your kick, snare, and then I just do your two overheads to capture your cymbals, and then you've got your toms there as well. Cool. I think I would do the exact same thing. Um, where would you, how would you position your overheads? Would it be different since you can't, you don't have any um, direct mics on your toms? Yeah. So personally, when I use overheads anyway, I kind of use them almost as just cymbal mics. Okay. I, I don't, I don't usually use them what most people use overhead mics for, for everything. Um, so I would definitely, I, try point them a bit further in towards the center to try pick up some more of the toms as well and the rest of the kit as opposed to just the cymbals cool i've tried this before because when i first started doing studio stuff i only had a four channel interface so when i was recording drums i was um using four microphones and i think it's the john bonham technique where and i might be wrong about this because i can't remember if he used two or four mics but uh, you use a direct on the kick and snare, and then the overheads, instead of having them uh, in front of the drummer where the cymbals are, you put one overhead high above the hi-hat, and then the other one kind of back behind the kit a little bit more. And the hope there is that you're capturing the floor tom. So hmm. in, in my typical drum recording setup where I'm using a lot more microphones, I'm just high-pass filtering all the low. Yeah, and I'm just grabbing the 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 high end of the cymbals, but in that context, maybe you could bring in some of the low end to help capture the body of the toms with the yeah. overheads. Yeah, that's a really good idea, actually. Um, you say that you used to actually have to use a four mic setup. Um, how did you find actually EQing your overheads to get the most out of them in terms of you know hearing more of your toms? It was it was pretty tricky uh, because you can you can also run into really bad phase issues too because you have the tom or the the mics that you're using to mic your toms or your overheads so they're way farther away than your direct mics for your kick and snare so I kind of just played around until I could find something that I thought worked but it's so much more difficult than uh, just having an eight channel interface. <laughs> I read about an interesting technique that made me think of um, kind of reevaluate my what my four mic strategy would be, and I've never tried this, so that's that's the disclaimer here. But I was reading, I forget the engineer's name now, unfortunately, but he engineered an album by The Strokes, and there was something a concept called like a kick snare mic, where he took a mic with like a figure eight polar pattern and put it underneath the snare, kind of like one side of the polar pattern looking at the bottom of the snare and the other one looking at the beater of the kick and kind of adjust the distance till you get a nice you know a nice volume balance between the kick and the snare um and then you can use two mics for for overheads and then kind of that one mono room mic i was thinking like that could be a nice a nice way to get a full drum sound because the issue i think i've heard this on tracks people have sent to me where they try to do the overheads to kind of, they're trying to find a balance maybe between overheads and, and room mics. And you end up kind of having a big hole in the middle of the the stereo field where like you got this, you got the overheads on the side, you got these close mics on the kick and snare, but you're missing kind of like the body of the, of the kit. Um, so I, 
Yeah, any anybody play around with any any concepts like that where you're trying to use one mic to capture kind of close mic two different shells? That's a good question. Eddie, have you tried doing that before? Anything like that? The only thing I, I really do like that is mainly to do with the snare. So I'll try get a lot of the actual body, a lot of the main thump of the snare with the close mic. And then I'd pretty much rely on the overhead mics for the actual snappiness, the high end mm. of the snare. But um, that is only with the snare that I've really tried that. I've not actually tried to um, create that sort of effect with toms, trying to bring out more of them in the overhead mics. But I suppose that's just down to the way that I actually mic up my overheads. I, I usually do it so I'm bypassing the toms almost. Vadim, unless I got it wrong what you were explaining, so would the that mic that would be capturing both the kick and the snare, would that be underneath the snare? Yeah. The, my only issue with that is that I would much rather have, if I could only mic one side of the snare, it would be the top side. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that's, I think it's kind of like what Eddie said there is where like the, you're, I guess you're relying on the overheads at that point to capture that, the, the top of the snare, which is where a lot of the, the meat is rather than just the snappy, uh, crispy bottom. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I've never tried it, but um, maybe worth, worth playing around with if you're limited on channels. I will, um... Yeah, I don't know how you guys are doing on time, but Eddie, I did want to ask you a little bit about some of the work you're doing. If you want to talk about it, uh, if not, we can edit it out. But the um, with Entrepreneur Drummer, uh, what's the idea behind that, and uh, what what do you have in the pipeline? <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, um, it kind of all happened a bit by accident because I started off this drum editing thing, and uh, I started talking to a lot of drummers, and I kind of realized while talking to drummers that they weren't very savvy with the business side of things. Um, they were all like, oh yeah, I've, I will give you work, but I can't really get clients at the minute. I'm struggling to find people <laughs> and all this sort of stuff. So I kind of just started giving advice to people and uh, I ended up creating a free guide for people to use and download to sort of help them find new clients and treat the hobby more like a business. So it kind of like developed into this whole new thing. So that's why I started the Entrepreneur Drummer really. So it's just teaching uh, so it's just teaching session drummers basically how to treat being a drummer being a session artist more like a business how to actually use them people skills um to network to make friends with people to work with people in the future um a lot of it as well is to do with the efficiency with recording so similar to what we touched on earlier with keeping a dedicated kit set up for recording um, you know, making session templates, things like that. It's just anything to do with sort of um, treating your hobby more like a business. So it's just educating drummers in that sort of respect. I kind of felt that there weren't any go-to resource for people out there. So once I started putting out this content, then people started liking it and sort of asking for more. So it wasn't really planned, but it sort of turned into something now, which is cool. And, uh, and yeah, I ended up releasing a course, um, a membership site as well. So yeah, that's up at the minute. Yeah. Where, where can people find that? Yeah. So if you just go to the entrepreneurdrummer.com, uh, on there, there's a ton of free resources. There's a free guide, a 50 minute workshop as well. That essentially just teaches a way you can find clients online. Um, there's a blog with a ton of videos as well and articles, some resources. And then of course there's a link to, um, some paid content as well 
Yeah, and I gotta say, I've been I've been checking out some of your some of your videos on the YouTube channel, and I would I would even say they're useful, you know, for any musician that's trying to to make a living as a as a session musician. I mean, you got some some really great content out there uh, for things like you know, I think the one one of the ones I watched recently was some of the top mistakes you see people make in like their uh, social media profiles and, um, the information was really good. I mean, he was even, <laughs> I found it very useful for myself actually. So you're making a, a lot of great content there for musicians. The last two points or the last two questions that you asked, um, what does it take to be a studio mu- musician? And do you recommend sites like Fiverr? I like them. Um, yeah. Did you happen to see that video about Fiverr that, um, I put, no. was, was that inspired by that? I didn't know. <laughs> no, 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 it wasn't. I, um, yeah, I'm genuinely curious. I mean, I, Fiverr, for those who don't know, it's, it's a site where you can, you can kind of contract, uh, creative services, not just, um, you know, not just musicians, but if you, if you are a musician, you can offer your services on there. And, uh, for example, if you're a vocalist, I've, I know I've, well, like the intro to this podcast actually. So the intro to this podcast was a guy I found on, on Fiverr. So it is a useful site, but yeah, I'm really curious on your thoughts and I, I did not see the video. So go into uh, as much detail as you want. Well, um, it kind of contradicts what you just said there, really. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, weirdly, but um, no, to be honest, I've used Fiverr before to hire vocalists for songs that I produce because I can't sing at all. So it's been really helpful, you know, in terms of me looking for people on there. But um, I've actually tried to use it as well. Back when I used to mix and master a bit more, I actually tried to use it to sell my services there. But um, basically, I think that unless if you were on Fiverr when it first started out and it was you know less crammed, um, then you're going to find it really, really difficult to get found because um, the way it works is you get reviews from doing your projects and the more reviews you get, you know, the more good reviews you get, the higher up the search engine within the platform you'll actually get. So at the minute, you've got these people that have been on there for years and they're sort of mopping up all the projects that are on there. And if you're just starting out, the only way to really try get work over them is to just offer like a stupidly low price, which is what I was doing. And I think once you start doing that, you just undervaluing yourself uh, you're not getting the right clients because you're getting people that want to pay five dollars for something right um, you know so you get unrealistic expectations and all this and i just don't think it's that's a great way to value yourself and sell services yeah just just to clarify i don't have any experience on the on on being on there as a service i've really my experience only goes as far as i've gone on there to to get to get this voiceover work and found it to be um, user friendly for that, but I can definitely, I definitely uh, understand your concerns there for being a service listed on there. There's nothing wrong with humble beginnings, you know. Just network with the people in your direct vicinity. Like everybody has a circle of influence, even if it's only five people. Start with those five people, and you know, start building a name for yourself. As far as talking about um, being a drum entrepreneur, you know, you want to be a studio drummer and stuff like that. Just I'm sure you know somebody that's in a band. Ask them, hey, you know, I'd love to play on something. You know, start humble and build from there. I think that's way, a way better way of going about it. That's good advice. Yeah, and, and Eddie, maybe finish your thought on there as far as, you know, what does it take to be a successful studio musician? You know, it's kind of a, a maybe a long, we could probably do a whole episode on that, but uh, 
give give some points there. Yeah, so I kind of think there's three main things that you'll need. The first one is to just know your instrument inside out, be able to improvise and adapt, you know, just on the day. With a lot of studio musicians, you know, time's money. You're there a certain amount of time. You need to get things done. Sometimes you're going to hit these obstacles where producers would turn around and say, look, what you've been practicing for the past few weeks isn't working. You've got to come up with something and now, you know, you need to know your instrument inside out in order to do that. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really important. I think one thing that's kind of left behind and not really thought about is just being a genuinely good person to hang about <laughs> with, um, being a, being nice to people as well. You know, you could be the best drummer in the world or best musician in the world, but, you know, if you're not nice to people or if you're a pain in the ass to work with, then no one's going to want to work with you again. Uh, simple as that, really. Um I think as well, you need to have a really hard shell. You need to be, you need to be able to withstand pressure. You need to be good mentally to, you know, take on that pressure because, you know, we all know going to commercial facilities and studios, it can be pretty nerve wracking at times, especially when, you know, you've paid for a certain amount of time and, you know, time's running out, you're not getting those takes. So I think as well, you know, being mentally strong and being able to withstand pressure is a massive part to it. So uh, to be honest, I'd say it's almost more mindset and personality as opposed to, you know, your actual skills. You have no idea like how many doors I can open just being a good hang. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's amazing. <laughs> like just not being a dick <laughs> and, uh, you know, if somebody hires you for something, show up and do a good job and, you know, have, have fun, laugh with people and you'll get the call again. They'll talk about you. Yeah, man, I couldn't agree more. Um, it's easy for some people to let the egos get in the way, you know, oh, look, I played with these, I played with these, I can act the way I want now. Uh, it's, you know, I think if you have that mindset, you're going to get found out sooner or later. So, yeah, I couldn't agree well. Uh, couldn't agree more with you there. Eddie, maybe just talk about where people can find your work and find you. You mentioned the Entrepreneur Drummer. Um, what are the other channels? Yeah, so theentrepreneurdrummer.com is there for session drummers that want to learn more about the business side of things and get more clients. Um, if you're after any drum editing, then you can go to drumaudioediting.com and that's where I offer any kind of drum editing services, drum sample replacement, even uh, mixing for drum covers as well. Um, you can go to there for that. And I do offer a free sample as well if anybody just wants to try it out. Thanks so much for coming on and uh, being our first guest ever, man. I think it I think it was successful. So thanks, man. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Until next time, the DIY recording guys reminding you to check yourself. Before you wreck yourself, have a good one. <laughs>
or by email, ben at dreamloudstudio.com. And finally, join our Facebook group to engage with a whole group of friendly, like-minded people who are interested in DIY recording. Just search for DIY Recording Guys on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening and for your continued support. I'll see you next week.